We're going to be in John chapter 2. And I'm uh, looking forward to this area now. Um, what you believe matters, right? What you believe matters. If you believe the snow out here right now is going to continue on and it's going to turn into, you know, some real bad snow, you are going to be running to Canadian Tire after the service and fighting for that last snow shovel they have in stock, right? Uh, if, if you believe that, Education really matters. You're going to really apply yourself in school. You're going to study for your exams. You're going to listen to what the teacher's saying. You're going to, you're going to change the way that you are dealing with school if you feel that education really matters. If you believe your dog got into the, lax, uh, the laxatives, you're going to be having him sleep outside that night, right? What you believe matters. If you think something, it's going to change kind of the way that you, you look at things. It's going to change the action that you take towards it. But what shapes what you believe? And it can be a number of things, but here John is writing this gospel for a particular reason. John's purpose in writing this gospel is, somebody want to take a stab at it? Somebody tell me, why is John writing this gospel? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why John is writing this gospel. It's to shape what you believe, to lead you in what you believe, because what you believe matters. So throughout this book now, John is taking us through seven signs. Seven signs or seven miracles that are put in here to show us that Jesus is who he is, and that if you indeed believe in him, then you're going to experience life in his name. And I say all that to say, in John chapter 2 here, we get into the first of these seven signs or miracles. It's important because John is using this to help everyone and anyone who's reading this to see Jesus more fully, to grow in their faith of him, and to help them believe and trust in Jesus. John is looking to shape what we believe and how we believe about Jesus, putting our trust in him. Now, an ethics teacher, John Cavanaugh, once visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And he asked her to pray that God might give him clarity. She responded, no, I'm not going to do that. I have never had clarity, she said. What I have always had is trust. So I'll pray that you trust God. And that's often the case with faith, is that we don't always have the whole picture in front of us. And that's what faith does, is it causes us to move out believing what's God, what God's going to do despite what we see or don't see. But John is not calling us to a blind faith or trust in Jesus. In fact, John is seeking to give us greater clarity and insight into who Jesus is and why we should trust him. He's causing us to see the source of where our faith is, and that's in Jesus. And that's what John is, is looking to do as he's writing through this gospel, and especially as we get into John 2 and in this first sign that we see. And these signs that we're going to be looking at, they reveal to us moments when heaven and earth are intersecting. Again, to show that Jesus is more than just a man that came around with a good teaching, that this is where heaven and earth are intersecting with each other. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he was having that dialogue with Nathaniel in the previous chapter. In fact, just go a couple verses. Chapter 1, verse 50, just Right there, look at this. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
Well, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that's where these signs come in because this is where you're going to see the work of God unfold through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's able to do that work because he is, in fact, God. And so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So look at what we see here, and this is a great, a, a great account, and I, I love this story here, but John chapter 2, verse 1, here's what we begin to read. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Let me just stop right there. So we're referenced here a bit of a timeline. It's the third day, it says. Now we wonder the third day of what? Uh, most believe that Jesus is speaking of the third day since the time of, again, calling his first disciples we saw in chapter one, his dialogue with Nathaniel that we just touched on already. So it's three days after that. And so we're getting a glimpse into this first week of ministry of Jesus as he's starting, beginning this public ministry. We're getting a glimpse into this first week here now and so it's the third day after the things that we just seen in chapter one but also i think there's there's a bit of you know reference to another important event the greatest of signs that happened on the third day jesus's resurrection right and so again i think a tie in to what is really the culmination of the the greatest of events there that Jesus did. And so we find out that Jesus is in this town called Cana, and there's a wedding going on. Cana is in the area of Galilee, all right? And it's up in the north there. It's about eight miles northeast of Nazareth, all right? And that's going to be important. Because here in this town now, this wedding is happening. We see that Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. So perhaps this was a, a, a family connection that they had. Remember, Jesus grew up there in Nazareth, so this is nearby, all right? Plus, we're going to see that Mary took on some kind of responsibility and felt a need to step in and, and help here and take on some responsibility in this wedding. So it's very possible that they're at the wedding of a, a family connection. Either way, these are friends here, I'm sure they knew, because when a wedding uh, took place, again, just kind of the whole community was invited out to take part in it. So whether it's a family connection or just friends, we see that not only was Mary there, but Jesus and his disciples are there too. And I think that's just super important to do that, to invite Jesus into your wedding and more so to invite him into your marriage. We're going to see through this event that Jesus loves to make things better. He adds a quality to life that is unsurpassed and how we need to ground our relationships and especially our marriage relationship, how we need to establish that and see that grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. How important it is to be daily just inviting Jesus into your life, into your relationships, into your marriage. Jesus, be present with us because we need you. And Jesus is there present. And I love this because in these days, weddings were a big thing. A typical Jewish wedding feast would last for seven days. All right? Now, I, I'm so glad that that's not the case. I couldn't imagine having to pay for a wedding that lasted seven days, right? That's, I mean, I'm like doing the, the barbecue potluck wedding for my kids. I don't know if they know that or not, but that's the way that I'm going to be rolling when it comes to them getting married. And by the way, guys, you know, like, pick it up. Let's get that going. Okay, so, um, and that only applies to a couple of them, so. Um, so, 
here's the deal. This wedding, it was a big social event. And guess what? Jesus is there. See, a lot of times I think we can think Jesus was on mission and he lived this holy life, which he did. And he just kind of like went about taking care of what he needed to do, but all this other stuff. Man, no, that's Jesus. Come on. He's too, he's too busy for that. He's too big for that. He's too important. He's too holy for that. And yet Jesus is there. Jesus took time to be with people and engage in social activities like this. Listen, make no mistake about it. Jesus was on a mission. The greatest mission of all, saving humanity from their sin. Yet he took time to attend a wedding. That didn't take away from his mission. It supported it. This was going to be the occasion people would first begin to see who Jesus truly was. And I think that's so cool because I've been around people that take their mission, their calling, their, their relationship with God, like so serious that they're just no fun. They're like just no fun to be around. It's like, hey, let's go over there. Oh, I don't think I can do that. Oh, I shouldn't be there. Oh, no, I, I can't. I can't drive by the movie theater even. It's just not a good thing for me. You know, like I, I've been around people that are just like so serious that they are just no fun to be with. I'm like, man, I got to find me some new friends or something here. But listen, I don't think that was the way with Jesus at all. I understand that, okay? He's engaging in the culture. He's hanging out at a party. In fact, oftentimes Jesus was, was kind of condemned by the religious establishment for who he was hanging out with. He's in the home of sinners. He's eating and drinking with those guys? What? Jesus, how could you? You've lost your, you know, you've lost your mind here, Jesus. And yet that was exactly who Jesus was with. I'm not saying he was engaging in the culture, but he was engaging the culture. And he was looking to come in and make things better. He wasn't afraid to be at the home of a sinner or to be at a, a wedding feast where Wine was being served. He was okay being there and engaging the culture. He lived his life in perfect balance and more so, he used these events even to fulfill his mission. Listen, in the same way, we can be about our father's business in times of pleasure and times of work when we bring Jesus into it. Our mission is not something we do, it is who we are. And so whatever you're doing, bring Jesus, invite Jesus into everything that you do and ask him to use it for his glory. You don't have to look at something and say, well, no, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. I can't be there. I mean, obviously I understand there are certain things that as believers, we need to be careful where we're at and what we're doing. And then it's not causing us to stumble, others to stumble. I understand that. But I think Jesus wasn't, as worried about those things as, as we sometimes can be. And that he got out to where people were. And he was enjoying social activities with them. Because that's part of our mission in a sense. As we live out Jesus there in those occasions. So I think it's pretty significant also that this first miracle. Is taking place at a wedding. Because marriage is a God ordained thing. And that goes all the way back to creation, doesn't it? When God brought Adam and Eve together for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's something that God has ordained right from the beginning. Marriage is a wonderful thing. And here's Jesus, a part of the wedding and condoning it. 
God has a wonderful purpose in marriage. And it's sad to see how marriage today can be viewed. Because I think people often have a very low view of marriage. And kind of have, you know, in this day and age, marriage has kind of been cast aside as sort of like, ah, maybe an afterthought, maybe something we'll do later. It's not really something I even need to do. And sadly, that thought becomes even prevalent in the church more and more. I'm kind of surprised what I see, you know, going on in the church where people are, you know, saying, oh, we're just living together. Oh, we're not married, but, you know, maybe one day, but we're just living together. We're just kind of, you know, shacking up in a sense, right? And what's happening is that people that are doing that are, are choosing to do things their way. Living a life kind of with no strings attached, no commitment. You know, and they'll try to make it a little bit, you know, sound a little bit more official. Well, we're cohabitating, you know. We're just kind of partners here. I, I mean, you're, you're shacking up. You're going against what God has ordained here. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's simple. It's clear in God's word that we're not to be involved in any kind of, uh, uh, of sexual immorality, which means basically anything outside of marriage. It's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. And so people are doing this. And it's interesting because those that lived together before getting married actually have a higher divorce rate. And you would think it would be the other way around. Because oftentimes people's excuse for doing so is that they can discover, well, we're just trying to see if we're compatible. Compatible? Really? Listen, if you've got a male and a female, you're compatible. All right? And if you're not following me, I can do you some pictures later on. Just come and see me. But... There's a compatibility there that's just present when you take a man and a woman and you join them together as God has ordained. One woman, one man, pledged together in marriage. We're not talking about compatibility. What we need is commitment. We need covenant. We need people to decide, I am going to covenant to be with you in this relationship for life. This is not just a feeling. It's a commitment. Love, love is a decision that we make. This commitment is a decision you make, not a feeling. And people today love to make excuses of just, you know, why I, I, I'm not going to be married. Well, I was, you know, I grew up in a home where my mom and dad, they just fought all the time and ended up getting divorced. And so I just don't see the need for marriage. Listen, don't let that be the gauge or the standard of how you're going to view marriage. Because that's not God's way. I don't let a bad experience at McDonald's keep me away from going to In-N-Out Burger. That would just be wrong. That's not the standard. And so sometimes people love just to bring up excuses and reasons why. But understand, when we follow God's way and God's word, he desires to come and bless your marriage. But the key is that we need to invite Jesus in. We need to do it his way, not our way. And when you do, you're going to experience a marriage that is blessed because God wants to bless that. And Jesus is here at this wedding condoning it, seeking to bless it, seeking to make this wedding better, as we'll see. So notice there in verse three again, they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So at this wedding, the unthinkable happens. They run out of wine. Now to us, we, we hear that, we think, it's no big deal. Just Run down to the local store and pick some more up, right? Well, listen, that was not the convenience that they had at this time. They didn't have that option. 
This was something that had to be planned out, prepared. And not only did they run out of wine, but understand something, because I think we easily miss this. To run out of wine in this day was not just inconvenient. It was viewed as a social disaster, a disgrace. Be similar to running out of Doritos at your Super Bowl party. It just wouldn't be good, right? But understand this. Understand this. Like I said, I think we, we, we miss the gravity of this situation right now because the family hosting this wedding feast would live with this shame and embarrassment for having this happen. They were breaking, you know, they were breaking this very strong, unwritten code of hospitality where these hospitality laws were like, man, if you had somebody come into your home, you entertain them as though they were family. You provided for them, you fed them, you gave them a place to sleep. I mean, this was the rule. You could go even today over to the Middle East and you can just show up, you know, at somebody's place and, and it's kind of like that unwritten code. They got to take you in. They got to be hospitable. And so for this to happen was a disgrace. And the shame of this would stay with this married couple all of their days. Talk about starting your marriage off on the wrong foot. This would be it right here. So that's what's at stake here. And so Mary sees all this going on and she decides to turn to Jesus. Let me just interject here. Because it's kind of interesting. Mary is never mentioned by her name in John's gospel. Always referred to as the mother of Jesus. And she's only alluded to twice in the gospel of John, here at this wedding and there at the cross when Jesus says to his mother, you know, uh, and to John that that they are to be in that mother-son relationship in a sense now. That's the only time that Mary is mentioned, but not even mentioned by name. You see, Mary, and I bring that up to say that Mary oftentimes... And certainly not in this church, but in other settings, Mary can become very much venerated, worshipped, exalted. She's the one that gave birth to Jesus. And yes, that's true. But you won't find that in the scriptures. Jesus always has preeminence. And Mary is never exalted or elevated in any way in scripture. In fact, it's always the mother of Jesus. Jesus is the one that always has preeminence. He's the only one that's worthy of praise and glory. And that's how it's clear in scripture. And, and if anybody would choose to do that, it'd be John because tradition tells us that John, sorry, again, at the cross, when, when Jesus says today that she shall be your mother, tradition tells us that, that John you know, took Mary back with him and uh, he was based out of Ephesus near the end of his life. And, and she lived with him there until, until she died. And so John had entered into that relationship with Mary as kind of a, a son. And if anybody would have wanted to exalt Mary, it would have been John. But he doesn't. In fact, we're going to see the last recorded words of Mary right here in this chapter. After that, again, she's not mentioned a whole lot. Because she's not what it's about. Jesus is what it's about. So Mary, smart thing to do, turns to Jesus. But Jesus gives a bit of an odd reply here. Doesn't he? What does he say? Woman. Woman. What is your concern to do with me? You're, you're kind of left thinking like, Jesus, were you just kind of having it now with Mary, your mom? Did you hear too much of Jesus just clean your room or Jesus do the dishes? Are you like now putting your foot down saying, woman, enough? 
Right? I mean, you listen to that and you're kind of like, what is going on here? Now, in saying woman, it doesn't have the same connotation as it does today. I don't think many of us would feel comfortable calling our mother woman. I know I wouldn't. It'd be the last time I ever said it, that's for sure. If I called my mom, hey, woman, come here. Wouldn't be good. It'd be the last time I'd be saying that. We wouldn't feel comfortable saying that. But in this day, it was inherently a respectful term. Although it wasn't a very intimate one. It wasn't a bad thing like it would be today to say woman. It's not Jesus being rude, but it was lacking intimacy. It's as though Jesus is trying to put things into perspective. Things were going to drastically change as he is entering into his public ministry at this time. Jesus came, you see, to do the work of the Father, not the work of man. He came to please the Father and not to please people. Otherwise, he never would have offered his life as a sacrifice for sin. If he responded to what men wanted from him, he would have filled bellies, he would have healed diseases and overthrown Rome. And then all of humanity would have died and gone to hell. If he had done what men wanted them to do. Jesus came to fulfill a work that was so different than what others expected from this coming Messiah. So Jesus matter-of-factly says, what does this concern have to do with my work? What does your concern, your interest, have to do with my work and my will? I think that's a good thing to ask ourselves. Lord, am I getting caught up with what I'm wanting to do? What I'm wanting to see happen? Am I more concerned with my will getting done or your will, Lord? And we need to ask, her that, ask ourselves this. Does our, or does this activity or project I'm involved in allow Jesus to accomplish his work and purposes through it? May our activities increasingly line up with his. May our activities consistently and increasingly line up with his. And so Jesus adds these words now. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So we're introduced to this term now here in John's gospel that we're going to get very acquainted with. Because it's going to be a term that's going to be used over and over again. Now, we look at this and we think, well, what's the big deal here? My hour's not yet come. Well, you might think, Jesus, what is the right hour to make some wine? Like, what's the deal here? Is it in a couple hours? Is that going to be an okay time to make some wine? Is that going to be when you're able to help us? Or what's the right time here, you know? And we can look at this and think, what's going on? But Jesus isn't just saying, I'm not feeling up to it right now. Try me later. He's saying, He's saying, this is not my time. And, and, and there's some significance happening here. Because Mary is requesting Jesus now to step up to the plate. Ultimately, she's asking him to do a miracle. Again, there's no, this isn't Jesus, we have no wine. Can you run down to the local 7-Eleven and pick some up here? This is not what we're talking about here. This is not Mary saying, Jesus, can you go off and get some more wine? She's basically saying, Jesus, I know what you can do. And will you step up to the plate right now and show everybody who you are? And I think there's a bit of a, a hidden agenda here, which is why Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This is not my hour yet. You see, Mary has been living for the last 30 years with a stigma attached to her. Virgin birth? 
Virgin birth? Get out of here. Yeah, right. Come on, Mary. Just fess up. Tell the truth already. We know what you and Joseph were up to. She's been living with this stigma. And again, that would have caused her to be a disgrace in society. And she's been living with this for 30 years. Do you think she's not been waiting for the time when Jesus would reveal who he is? Where not only she can say, ah, there he is. But she could say, aha, I told you so. You didn't believe me. Look at this. Finally. It's been a long 30 years. No doubt she's been waiting for this opportunity for vindication, for reputation to be restored. Jesus, they have no wine. Is this the time? But Jesus kiboshes that notion. He says, What is your concern? This is something that Mary's hoping for herself. What does your concern have to do with me? This is not my hour. So what is this hour all about? Because we're going to see the concept of that build over this book as we go through the gospel of John. But look at what we see here in John 7 verse 30. Because we see this repeated. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour not yet come. That hour brought protection to Jesus. John 8, 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. And then we see this begin to build. John 12, 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. And then in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. See this hour that Jesus speaks of that drives this journey through the gospel of John is the hour that Jesus would go to the cross and suffer and die for the sins of the world. This hour is the greatest event in human history when the son of God became sin for us and he sacrificed himself in our place that we could be made the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. There's been no greater hour save the resurrection. This hour is the reason Jesus came to this earth. This hour when combined with the purpose of doing the father's will reveals that Jesus came to do a work that was even beyond what his mother and his disciples recognized initially. That it went so far greater than what they had ever anticipated. You see, Jesus was operating on a divine timetable. Remember looking at the prophecy that we have in Daniel chapter 9 when that timeline was given from when the decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem goes forth until the coming of the Messiah. There'd be that that group of years equaling 173,880 days. You can take it right down to the minute or to the day. And and you see that when that decree eventually went forth, Nehemiah chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 1, I believe, to when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the first time he allowed the public praise of him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can trace it all back and it equaled exactly what Daniel prophesied. God had established this exact timing, this exact hour when all this would begin to unfold. God had well established that. And if Jesus brought attention to himself too early, well, people would have 
they're much quicker to attach their agenda to his plan. Oh, you're the guy? You're the one we're looking for? Oh, well, man, let's get at it then. Let's just make it happen. That's what his own brothers had told him to do. Remember how Jesus, when he would go and touch the life and heal somebody early on in his ministry, somebody would be given a great miracle of healing. And what did Jesus say? Go and tell no one. You're like, what? Why no? That's the guy you want to send out to tell everybody, look at what you've done, Jesus. But again, Jesus knew that as word would go out, people all the more would begin to attach their agenda and try to override his. And how easy it is to do that even in our lives. Because we can often look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to... And you fill in the blank. Jesus, I want you to... But are we asking for what we want? Or what we think we need? Or are we simply saying, Jesus, do your work in me and through me. Let your will be done, not mine. Perhaps you might be looking to Jesus as Mary was. Maybe you've been wanting vindication, reputation. Maybe it's been about your cause. But as Jesus came to glorify himself and provide salvation, so too, we're simply to live for the glory of Jesus. In other words... We may not always see everything vindicated or made right this side of eternity. We may not always see everything line up the way we want it to this side of eternity. But all those things can still become opportunities for Jesus to be glorified in our lives. And that should be our perspective and purpose in this world. We're not living for ourselves. In fact, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him, what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that speak of? It speaks of dying to self. That's what we're called to do, to die to self, to say it's not about me, not about my wants, my needs, my rights, my desires. Jesus, I want to die to those things so that I can see you glorified in my life. The only thing that gets in the way of Jesus being more seen and glorified in our lives is us. And that's why that principle of dying to self is so key, so important. Because Jesus came ultimately for that hour of which he would then be glorified as he hung on the cross, as he took the punishment of God, the judgment of God for our sin. And it was in that place of dying that he was most glorified. It's in that place of us dying to self that Jesus becomes much more glorified. May that be the case in our lives. But understand something here. The great thing is, and as we see in this passage, is that as we die to self, as we see Jesus more exalted in our lives, guess what happens? Things go from good to better. Things go from okay to awesome. See, Jesus wants to make things better in our lives. And that's what we're going to see him doing here at this wedding. How are we doing for time? Okay, verse 5. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Just do it. Hey, these are the last words of Mary that we have in in scripture. And they're wise words, aren't they? And you think Nike came up with that campaign slogan, just do it. No, that's, that's biblical right there. Just do it. And you see, Mary placed complete faith in Jesus. And whatever he said, guess what? Whatever he said, It would be the right thing to do. Oh, how we need simple faith like that. To just know that his way is the best way. Well, what if Jesus asked me to do this? What if he wants me to go here? What if he wants me to do this? And and do it. 
Because guess what? It's going to be the greatest blessing for you. You think saying, oh, I think I've got a better idea. You think you're going to be more blessed than that? Whatever he says to you, do it. It's simple. And it can seem hard at first, but guess what? Jesus is never going to put you in a place where he's like, oh, man, that's, he's just suffering. Oh, that's so good for them. Look at that. Jesus is going to put you in a place where he wants to bless you ultimately. And whatever he says to you, understand that it's going to be the best way, whatever it is. So let's see what Jesus said to do. Verse 6. Now, there were there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. <coughs> so these six water pots sitting here, they're, they're referenced to their tie to the old system of the law. Because Jews would come and they would wash their hands in a ceremonial way. Anytime before they would eat a meal, they would come and do this in a very legalistic manner, ultimately. Because they would have a system of doing it where this, these water pots were there. They were kind of set aside for the ceremonial washing. They would pour the water out on a person's hand. They'd have to rub and wash a certain way and up to the elbows. And it was a very kind of legalistic thing that they did. Remember when, when Jesus was out with his disciples, it was the religious leaders that came to Jesus. Well, it's in Matthew 15, 1-2. I'll read it to you. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And I don't think the disciples are coming up in a way where they're just like filthy or anything, but that they didn't wash their hands in the manner that was prescribed to them through the tradition of the elders. They had begun to put on all this different rules and, and rituals of how to do things in an outward manner. And they confront Jesus and his disciples on this. And what did Jesus have to do? He had to rebuke them in that chapter and say, listen, you're worried about, about us kind of breaking your traditions when you're breaking the very commands of God. Again, because they did everything on an outward manner, but yet their hearts were far from God. And you see, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to do a work on the inside. That's where we need the work being done. You take care of the inside and the outside is going to reveal that. But so often people are just looking to kind of, you know, put on a nice exterior. Your house could be falling apart on the inside. It's not going to help just putting on a fresh coat of paint on the outside. That's kind of what these religious leaders were doing. Jesus wanted to get to the core. And so what he's doing is, is he's doing a work now from the inside. It's as though Jesus is showing the inferiority of the law. And what the law can do for us. Because in using these water pots for something other than ritual purification. It would have rendered them temporarily unclean and unusable for ritual purposes. It's as though Jesus is saying, I'm laying aside the old and bringing in something new. Something better and superior now. That's the picture that we see happening here. So Jesus has these servants fill up the water pots with water. And to fill them up to the brim. Or they fill it up to the brim. This is not Jesus, you know, coming now and... And, and doing a miracle by adding wine to the water already there. You know, kind of like trying to trick people, right? Like nobody's looking, okay, I'm going to dump some wine in here now and just mix it with the water. And everybody be like, whoa, cool, how'd you do that? We just put water and now there's wine. That's so awesome. 
This is no sleight of hand. This is no deceptive practice here. This is a miracle that Jesus does because these water pots were filled to the brim with water, H2O. And we'll see what Jesus does. Notice three aspects, first of all, of obedience from these servants. First of all, they obeyed immediately. They didn't, they didn't think about this and wonder what water could possibly do for them. They're not sitting here going, Jesus, no. Did you miss the message here? We need wine. We're out of wine. Why fill these things up with water? They didn't question it. They didn't doubt it. They obeyed immediately. They filled them up to the brim. And they obeyed completely. They didn't just go halfway thinking why they would need to fill them up. They didn't sit there and go, this is a waste of time. I'm only going to fill up halfway. No, they filled to the brim. They obeyed completely and they obeyed successively. They followed each instruction as it was given to them. They didn't stop after following one instruction. They didn't say, okay, we're filling up with water. We filled it to the brim. Now he wants us to take some out and bring it to the master of the feast. Like, what's the point of that? It's just water. We know he needs wine. Why should we do that? They didn't stop again. Question. They continued on with each and every successive direction given. No matter how unusual God's instructions may sound, we need to do what Mary said and do it. Have you ever had God say something to you or lead you in a certain way and you think, really? You want me to do that? And you begin to play in your mind like, is that really? That must not be the Lord because that sounds really strange. That must not be the Lord. That's probably just me. That's probably that Thai food I ate last night, man. That's just messing with my system right now. Can't be the Lord because that seems so odd. Doesn't make sense. You know, God's instructions may not always make sense to you because he's God, (laughs) right? And we're not. And his ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Don't sit there and try to reason how this looks. Does this make sense? Man, you sense the Lord is leading you, calling you, directing you in a way? Do it. Follow it. See what God will do. And notice here, verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This is so cool. See, the master of the feast was the one that had charge over, you know, the tables, the food, making sure everything was set and in order. He was kind of acting like the head waiter. He was really responsible for all these things, you know, come together. And notice what he discovered. The wine now is the best. You saved the good wine until now. You've made the best stuff last till the end here. You see, it was custom in an occasion like this, to serve the best wine first. And so, everybody gets in that good wine, it's quality, they're loving it, they're like, oh man, this is the best wedding I've ever been to. They're getting food into their system, they're having some wine, and at that point, after they've begun to get a little more comfortable and relaxed, you can slip in the, you know, the cheap wine, right? The wine you pick up at 7-Eleven in the cartons, you know, that you bring in that stuff at this point, and I mean, I that's you know what others have told me i don't i don't know anything about that but so i'm just having fun with you and a lot of people like to you know let me just let me just say this 
Because a lot of people like to say, again, well, Jesus, you know, this was just really grape juice. It wasn't really wine. If it's just grape juice, then why would they serve the good stuff first and then the bad stuff later when they are not as, you know, conscious and aware of the bad stuff coming out? So this is wine here. All right. And, and we could get in a whole nother sermon about and, and yeah, we're not going to get into all that right now about, you know, Christians and alcohol. Listen, the Bible doesn't say abstain, but it says be careful. Bible forbids drunkenness. So if you're thinking, oh, it's okay, I can get a little tipsy. No, it, the Bible's clear on that. But does the Bible say you can't have alcohol? No, it doesn't say that. But it does say be aware of those around you. They don't cause anyone to stumble. So be careful then. That's all we'll, we'll say about that. But here's the deal is that they're serving wine. Jesus is making wine. All right? So here's the lesson for us. There's a couple of them. First of all, the world loves to operate the way that the custom was in this day. Satan loves to operate in the way that the custom was in this day. They, they present the best stuff first. They present the good stuff. They make you think, look at how good, look at what we can offer you. Come and enjoy this. And how many people jump onto it until the world or Satan gets their hooks into them. And then they end up in a place where they feel trapped. You see, Satan doesn't just stop you from continuing on in enjoyment of those things. Things actually go you know, bad to worse. So many people think, oh man, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I need. And, 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 and the world and Satan have a way of just making a great presentation of that to make you think this is what's really going to satisfy. And you jump into it to a point where suddenly you're hooked. And guess what? They turn on you. And suddenly you realize this doesn't satisfy anymore. In fact, not only does it just not satisfy, it's, it's wrecking my life. It's, it's causing things to go from bad to worse. But that's not the way with Jesus. See, with Jesus, when he's brought into our lives, he makes things substantially better. Things go from good to better, from okay to awesome with Jesus. And in fact, things just keep getting better and better with Jesus. That's why Jesus could say in John 10.10 10, that I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly or to the full. That's what Jesus desires to do. He desires to fill you up with life, with joy, with blessing. See, the pots here, like I said, they, they represented this external washing. The Jews at this time were experiencing religious ritual and a sense of outward cleanliness, but there was nothing that they could do for internal cleaning and joy. There was no joy or satisfaction in all these things. And that's what wine in scripture represents. You know, it represents joy. Judges chapter 9, Psalm 104, verses 15, or verse 15, they reference this idea of wine and, and gladness and joy. You see, Jesus wants to take the mundane things of your life and change that into joy. A joy that's quality, that's lasting, that is full. And with Jesus, like I said, life just gets better and better. You cannot exhaust the abundance of life that Jesus brings. It won't run out. It doesn't dry up. It doesn't become, jo- it doesn't become dull. Joy in Jesus just continues to increase. Now, here's the thing. 
maybe you're here and feeling like things could be so much better than it is now. I wish things were better. But understand, the measure that you allow him to pour into you is the measure you will see this joy pouring out. See, those servants could have, like I said, filled those water pots just halfway. That's good enough. Come on. What's the point of this anyways? I'll just put a little bit of water in there. What's really going to happen? What's going to... But the more they poured in, the more they got out. The more they allowed to be filled, the more blessing flowed. Are you allowing Jesus to fill you today? Not just a little bit. Have you given him just a part of your life? Just a room? Or have you said, Jesus, I need you to come in and be my life. I want you to take over every part. I want you to not just fill me to the brim, but I want you to fill me to overflowing again. That comes as we continually yield our life, as we die to self and say, I don't want any part of me. I want all of you, Jesus. And the more that he fills you, the more that you're going to experience that joy and blessing in. Because with Jesus, it just goes from good to better to awesome. And it just keeps increasing. That's the life that we have in Jesus. That's what he wants you to experience today. Give your life to Jesus fully and experience true lasting joy and blessing that just keeps getting better. Well, let me wrap this up here. Verse 11 and 12. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers and his disciples and they did not stay there many days. His disciples had already been believing in Jesus. That was evident from that conversation with Nathaniel in chapter 1. They're already starting to see, you know, Jesus is worth following. But now they're beginning to see who he is in a fuller way. They're all looking at each other going, dude, this guy just turned water to wine. Oh my goodness. We didn't expect that to be happening. And they're starting to have a fuller revelation of Jesus. And so their faith is strengthening. See, the more that we know Jesus, the more that our faith deepens. That's going to be the progression we're going to see with his disciples in this book. The more that they begin to spend time with Jesus and see Jesus at work, the more that their faith is going to grow. The more this belief becomes clear. That was the beginning of signs. It says it right there. And it's funny because you can read a lot of stories that people pass on and say, you know, when Jesus was younger, well, we got a lot of stuff that happened that's not recorded in scripture. Like, you know, when he was young, he, he you know, touched these clay birds that were being sold and they came to life and they flew away. And they'll tell these fanciful stories of things that Jesus did. But guess what? The Bible says, eh, not true. Because this, was the first, the beginning of signs that Jesus did here. And there'll be seven of them. And each one is meant to draw people into a deeper and greater understanding of Jesus and to a greater faith in him. But what's significant is not just the transformation of water into wine. But I think for us, it's seen the transformation of sinners to saints because that's what Jesus came to do. And that's an incredible work right there. Man, we just saw witness of that last night with this movie where we saw these four gang members. I mean, just living such a hard life. 
and who have been transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the life of Jesus coming in and now just on fire for the Lord. It's an incredible thing to see. See, we have the time saying, oh man, well, Jesus, if you could just do a sign, if you could just do something, man, that would be great. That, then I could really just tell my friend that I'm trying to witness to and then they'd really believe. Well, if you could just do that. But look at what J.M. Boyce says. It should be the superior joy of the Christian that most commends the Lord Jesus Christ to unbelievers. You have the opportunity of living as an incredible witness just by having joy in Jesus. When the world sees you, despite your circumstances, despite your situations, despite hardships and difficulties that might come, when they see you living with joy in Jesus, they wonder, what gives? What is up with you? And we get to point them to Jesus. And you see, joy is so much greater than happiness. Happiness becomes very dependent upon your circumstances, your situation that you're in. But you see, joy, you know the source of our joy is? It's Jesus. The source of our joy is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change. He's eternal. In other words, it's a joy that should never run out, never run dry, never fail. Is your source of joy in Jesus today? Are you feeling like there's a lack of joy in your life? Then you need to pray, Lord Jesus, I need to get back in tune with you. I need to see you working and, and filling my life. Here's a couple of just Quick application points we'll run through here before we close. It says, first of all, we need to follow Jesus obediently and faithfully. Remember, transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Whatever he says to you, do it. Secondly, though you may be faced with a situation of shame and disappointment, Jesus can turn that around and bring something better. So trust him. These people went through Man, the potential of great shame and disappointment at this wedding. But guess what? Jesus turned it around for them. He can do that in your life. He wants to do that in your life. Trust him. Thirdly, let your joy be evident. That's a great witness to the world. If you feel like joy is lacking, come back to Jesus and ask him to renew that in your life. I'm going to invite the worship team, whoever might be here, come and join me up here. And we're going to just close in a song. It's an old song. Now we used to sing this Back in the day, we can kind of say that now, can't we? Back in the day, we used to sing this song. So stand with me. And yeah, you can do that now. Stand with me. All right. That wasn't just for Christina. That was for you guys. Stand with me. Um, and just like these water pots that were filled with water, right? How we need to be continually filled with the water of God's word. Allowing him... To allowing him just to fill us. The more that we're filled with the word of God, guess what? The more that Jesus can take that and bring joy that comes out. Let his joy be poured out of our lives. So we're going to sing the song, The Joy of the Lord, just in closing here. And let's just make this kind of our, our benediction and uh, prayer here today.